Good afternoon, Camp Wanislea. Camp Director Susan Check here. It's Parents Weekend, and am I ever grateful to have some extra eyes and ears around because, frankly, we are in trouble. There is something crawling around the bunks, and it is snatching up children. The camp counselors claim that it has no legs and bright red eyes. As such, the following additional restrictions are now in place. We are back on the buddy system. Every camper must pair up by the end of the day. Extra camp privileges awarded if you are twins, and extra desserts for those who are actually conjoined. Hatchet throwing and archery are postponed until further notice. The field trip to Times Square is now canceled. We cannot risk losing another camper in the Big Apple. I will not hear of it. Last announcement. Parents, if you've arrived to find your child, um, not here, please join me in the gazebo for some light refreshments and sign making. Bring a picture of your child. Everyone else, stay alert and stay alive. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Punk 237, a horror movie podcast. I am one of your hosts, Robin Slotnick. And I'm the other host, uh, Tuyet Nguyen. And today's guest, very special, super hard to book, I think, maybe. Uh, it is uh, a title uh, that Robin hates, but I'm going to say it. One of the co-creators of Robin Slotnick, her father, Craig Slotnick. Hello, Hello everybody. Mr. Have- Slotnick. <laughs> call me Mr. Zlotnik. <laughs> I'm going to call you Mr. You Zlotnik. You can call me Mr. Zlotnik, Robin. Yes. Hi, hi, guys. I'm really excited to be here. Can't wait. Can't wait to talk about this movie. Robin, speaking of, what movie are we talking about today with your father? What <laughs> well, super obviously, appropriate movie are we watching with your father? <laughs> obviously, it's the uh, father-daughter cult classic, 1982's Basket Case. Written and directed by Frank Henenlotter, who gave us uh, uh, such classics as uh, Basket Case 2, 3, <laughs> and uh, Frankenhooker. This movie stars Kevin Van Hentenrick as Dwayne. He and his deformed, formerly conjoined twin, Belial, go on a revenge mission against the doctors that separated them. And uh, I don't know why (laughs) we watched it a lot together, Dad, (laughs) Um, growing up. I already have some questions. Sure. Why is your father here? I mean, not like in an accusing way, but like... um, (laughs) The story of how we ended up having your father on. Well, we both love horror movies. And we're kind of the only people in our family who watches them and likes them. Right. I mean, I started watching horror movies as a kid. And when Robin was old enough to really enjoy horror movies, we would, I, I remember taking her to like these midnight horror movie shows when she was in high school. Um, and then she would have these uh, horror movie night sleepovers with her friends. Yeah. Um, I was really cool. <laughs> and uh, and I actually remember once, I can't remember what movie you were watching, but I, I showed up at the window with a real uh, <laughs> a chainsaw uh, <laughs> to, to scare your friends. So we always, it was just something that we, that we really shared, a, a joy of horror movies. And I still, I still love them. I watch them all the time. Yeah. yeah. And we text each other yeah. about all the horror movies we watch. Yeah. You should watch this one and try that one. 
Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, but it's I don't a father know daughter why bonding. Basket case in particular came into um, our lives. How it became, <laughs> it's well, such a it, weird it, one. Well, it came into our lives. It actually has to do with your uncle, uh, your uncle Mike, Rob. And this yeah. was a movie that um, he and I used to kid around about because of Belial and the character of Belial. Um, but it was a movie that, you know, when I was, I guess I was just getting out of college at the time. Um, and it was playing in uh, the midnight theaters and, uh, you know, at the, at the Waverly in, in Manhattan and, and other places. Um, and it just became sort of this cult thing. And then one year for, I know, it was my birthday or something, your, your uncle bought me the DVD and I've had it ever since. <laughs> and, and so we had it and it was just one of those kind of horror comedy, you know, schlocky kind of B-movies yeah. that we just had fun with and, and really enjoyed. And you guys grew up in New York, right? Like on the East Coast. So I feel yep. like being alive around in that era of like late 70s, early 80s New York, that connection seems so cool to just have even been in the area at that time. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about this movie is how is sort of the realistic view of Times Square in yeah. know, the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and it's true. I mean, I remember going down there, you know, at that, it was sort of my teenage years, it was gritty and, you know, they were drug dealers in the streets, you know, and, you know, all the peep shows and, you know, we used to go down and buy fake IDs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was, it was, but you know, when he comes, when he first comes down from upstate and you see him walking down 42nd street, that's yeah. what it was like. I mean, this is really yeah. so New York as it was. I had a note that that Times Square in 1982 is the scariest character in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I like that all of the characters are also just, you know, they're all living also in 1982. I really like how everyone kind of rolls with the punches, like all the hotel guests, as mm -hmm. everything is happening, everyone is kind of like, hey, that's New York. <laughs> no, it's true. And there were, I mean, I didn't know, like I didn't live in any of these places, but there are, and I mean, there were certainly at that time, hotels like that you know or these buildings where right. just, like everybody would just like be hanging out in the lobby and you know and, and drinking and then going up to their rooms and they you know they weren't like apartments they were hotels but like people lived there probably paying you know four dollars a night or something like that for rent and these places wow. existed all over the city so and these cast of characters and they are really like, oh yeah you know mr o'donovan and, and you know these other ones uh those are sort of, you know, characterizations of New Yorkers, but they were, they, those people were out there. Yeah. <laughs> so are deformed monster yes. children. <laughs> to get back to the movie. Murder. <laughs> uh, so Robin, when did you first watch this? I don't remember. I mean, I guess we were, we were watching horror movies before this, but this sort of started off like the really weird territory horror movies that mm. we started watching together. <laughs> yeah. Like, like we went to see like Gozu in theaters, the, the Takashi Miike movie. That's like really, really bizarre. <laughs> right. And well, what was the other one? The happiness of the category. Happiness of the category. Another, uh, that was the one that I think it's described as uh, the sound of music meets zombies or something like that. Yeah. And it's a Japanese horror musical. <laughs> so like, like, I feel like we sort of eased into horror movies. I was shown Silence of the Lambs kind of early on. I saw The Exorcist. I saw like all these kind of classics. And then like we hit Basket Case and just went off running <laughs> in the crazy direction. <laughs> That's true. I really, really 
really love that. I'm like so enamored by your by this relationship that you guys have with each other <laughs> of like sharing horror movies and being the only t- you know being the two in your family that like share this love for horror movies. I have a, a kind of a similar thing with my father, uh, at, at least as far as like he allowed me to watch horror movies. Mm-hmm. I remember very distinctly sixth seventh grade like I had moved uh I was it was just me and my dad we were living together um I changed schools and so like in that time period I didn't have a lot of friends like after school and on the weekends I didn't have a lot of places to go so my dad would take me to the video store every weekend which at that time was in the grocery store if you remember Uh uh (laughs) and uh in that time period was when I started watching a lot of horror movies and I was just at that age where I was still like into horses and stuff (laughs) and I remember walking by do you remember the movie Unico, The Last Unicorn? Like this like animated movie about, you know, unicorns. And I remember like walking by it and being like, oh, I should rent that. But then like turning the corner into the thriller horror section and being like, <laughs> what is this? And very distinctly week after week, I just kept skipping over Unico <laughs> in favor of like Tales from the Crypt. And like that time, you know, spent with my dad while he was in the other room and I'm just like in front of the TV <laughs> watching these movies. And so even though he wasn't directly a part of it, I really feel like he was. So I really yeah, love yeah. like your much more sort of direct uh, relationship with this in horror movies That's and your really introduction funny. to it. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if it's like a thing. Like, I wonder if dads just don't have like that, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't let my kid watch this. <laughs> yeah. Or, well, it's also, it's like, we want, we want somebody to watch a movie with us. <laughs> right, right, right. right. We'll, grab, we'll grab whoever is, you know, who's willing to do it. <laughs> yeah was there ever a concern where you, when robin got really into basket case where you were like "Ooh, i don't maybe i should pull back on this one a bit um you know the the one thing in in horror movies that re- that concerned me with robin the most was i think it was her freshman year in college <laughs> when, when she yeah. had to she had to write a, a movie script for for a class i think it was or for a contest no it wasn't for a class yeah but it was a contest (laughs) whatever it was and she wrote this horror movie about a and it was actually based on something that we had done once which was go to this little country fair that was we went to this little country fair but you had to park in a parking lot in the woods and then get on a school bus to drive through (laughs) the woods to get there right and that was I mean that was a little creepy but once you got to the fair it was fine but Robin sort of took that idea and and wrote this movie about this sort of I guess it was like a family who would take these people to this abandoned like fairgrounds and I remember reading it and thinking oh my god I have never read or seen anything (laughs) this horrifying or disgusting in my whole life and I was like what did we do? <laughs> um, I think I remember like taking notes and saying like in the, in the, in the column going like, Robin, you can't do this. Like, you can't, you can't. <laughs> I don't even remember what I wrote. But I, I was, can't remember either. Some I was very was, intent like, so on like intent and terrifying making death scenes that like I hadn't seen before. Right. <laughs> it's true. So I made them extra creative. <laughs> we have to find this script. Where is this script? I have no idea. Uh, it's probably lost on some dead hard drive somewhere. And yeah. thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, I had a hard copy of it, but I don't know where it is. But I think I mean it was so at that that was a one time when I was like, what did we do? What did I do wrong? <laughs> what did but you I'm do fine. right? I sir? Out fine. What did you do right? That's right. <laughs> Robin, how did Basket Case uh, influence your writing at that time? Um, probably <laughs> made it crazy. <laughs> <laughs> 
I rented this movie on Amazon. I don't know about you guys. Well, I guess, Dad, you watch the DVD watch that, you, that you own of this movie. Yeah. Which which <laughs> says a lot just to begin with. But <laughs> I actually own the DVD. This before movie. The, the movie starts, there's a title card or a card that says, this film is from the collections of MoMA, the <laughs> modern museum of art. Yes, and I was I like, yes. Yes, because this is art. <laughs> this is high it's art. art. It's Definitely. True. This is my first time watching it. I had never yeah. seen this before. I mean, I was kind of aware of it, but I I'd never watched it before. And when that came on, just, yeah, that title card that was part of the MoMA, I was like, got it. I'm in. I'm in. I'm, cool. I'm on board. <laughs> What if we did the entire who's on first bit and then asked people to leave us Apple podcast reviews? Who's on first? Yes. And what's on second? And I don't know who's on third. No, 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 no. We are not doing this. Right. No, no, no. We're not doing this is the shortstop. Stop. No, I don't think he's on the team. No, I mean, we're not going to do the whole Abbott and Costello bit. We're just going to nicely ask people to leave us a review on Apple podcast if they enjoy Bunk 237. Horror movie podcast, and that's that. That's the coach. This has been Robin and Tia do Who's on First. Stick around for more Bunk 237. One of my first badges, actually, it's not even a badge. It's I wanted to give the Upstate New York Art School degree to the <laughs> effects team and Hen and Lauder for making this yeah. incredible movie. But it is there's so much like sort of like 80s art school vibes about it. With there's like there's the stop motion animation, the Halloween style like blood and guts and makeup mm-hmm. and like practical effects. The fully <laughs> the fully work, oh. it, which I think is mostly the director. Uh, that I read, like he he does all Belial's like eating sounds, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. uh, the really the surgery scene when they're separating the twins, the squish. Yes, like, the, the squish, yes. The squish, squish that sound. sucking noise. I was just yeah. like, oh wow, that is like that's that's very very cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I mean. What I heard about Hen and Lauder in, in this whole. First of all, I think the the total budget for the movie was thirty five thousand dollars. Thirty five thousand dollars, and. <laughs> he initially wanted to make the movie for like he was in his mind 200 to 250 and when he couldn't get that money he just had to like scale back everything that he thought of doing to fit within the $35,000 budget so yeah. here's this movie that really i think i mean supposedly very influential on a lot of other you know horror movies to come that was made on just such a real you know shoestring budget with you know, the director manning the puppet at times. And right. you know, like you said, the stop, the stop motion, you know, which was just terrible. But, yeah. you know, he did that all himself. He had no yeah. idea what he was doing, right. and, you know. And, and, and like, I don't know about you guys, but like as silly as it is and as over the top as it is, like I, and I've seen this movie probably like, I don't know, five or six times. I jumped the first time I saw the Lyle <laughs> on screen. <laughs> and a lot of the reviews call it very gory and very like gross and like there's a lot of blood but it's very fake looking 
Yes. I think what's the oh. grossest part about it is the sounds. <laughs> the sounds are so gross. I had a I had a fantastic Foley badge for the <laughs> for the sound effects because yeah, it really good. is like so much. <laughs> and I think what you're saying, the thing that is truly scary about it for me was that Belial is a startling monster every time, and I yeah. I. I I think mm-hmm. it's because like humanoid monsters, like if a monster looks too much like a creature, too much like an animal, we can kind of move past it. But if that animal right. has like a face, like a human kind of face yeah. or teeth, or like it's always human teeth. If anything has like human <laughs> teeth, like if you've ever seen that picture of that fish. The that, fish like, <laughs> that has the human the teeth. Yes, human I know teeth, exactly what you're talking the, about. It is. Those are the things like with faces that get us the most. Right. And I don't know, I don't know what that is psychologically. If that's just like seeing ourselves as these as these like monsters as these sort of like creatures and i know it's fake you know what I mean? like i'm not right. i'm not convinced by <laughs> right. like by the stop motion you know or like the puppet i know it's a puppet hand you know <laughs> but still just like it's hard to look at Bullock. it is <laughs> right. difficult to look at him right. and there you get like you feel bad for him <laughs> yeah. Like he's treated so terribly in that very very long flashback. <laughs> right. Well, but the, and they're sort of like I mean, as as like schlocky as the movie is, there's this whole like treatment of the disabled kind of like right. overtone of you know the father being like I you know the, this kid isn't perfect, so you know let's cut him off and throw him in the garbage. Literally the garbage. Literally the garbage. Yeah. I was like, really? They didn't like check to see that he's still alive. No, literally the garbage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I definitely yeah, I had a lot of notes about what's the real monster here. And it's like, is the real evil the idea of like conforming to society? This is like art school me, you know, being like, <laughs> uh, can't conform to society. Normal isn't a standard. Um but <laughs> But then I also was like, like, did we make him a monster or is he just trying to be treated equally? But then he like raped and killed that woman. Yeah. Right. And then I went back and was like, no, yeah, he's a monster. He's yeah, a monster. Yeah, right. Yeah. You're going along and, and I think you're right. You're sort of sympathetic to him. It's this, this revenge movie, you know, right. and then like all of a sudden the the scene where he's in the basket with Casey's underwear and I just like yeah. cringed, you know? And and then and then obviously that you know the, the the rape scene at the end and it's just like uh you you'd sort of lose all sympathy for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was following along even through the really the long flashback which was comically to me so long that when they went back to present time, I forgot. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I was in a flashback. Right. <laughs> it's so fun. The whole, the structure of the movie is so funny to me because yeah. you kind of get what's happening. Dwayne is talking to, ha- having conversations with, had these telepathic conversations with Belial in the basket and it's just POV for a long time. Oh. And then you finally see Belial and you're like, what is happening? You kind of get that they're connected. And then he gets drunk with candy like an hour into the movie and spills the entire like <laughs> plot, you know? <laughs> like you get right. what's happening, but he's yeah. sitting there being like, I'm his brother. And he's, you know, we're <laughs> mad about being <laughs> detached. Yeah. He is by himself at the beginning of the movie when he's by himself and he's talking to his brother. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just like him on the set. And oh like, God. he is going for it (laughs) (laughs) real big expressions right he's like going crazy because his brother's in his head it's very good and then he's also very good at acting drunk (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't, I'm passing out while standing up in the doorway. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny, though, because he, he explains exactly what happened, and then we go into, like, the half-hour flashback that shows exactly what <laughs> right. happened. But it all feels like you're into it, you yeah, know? it all right. really moved along. I feel like I hyped this movie up a lot beforehand. <laughs> I mean, I never thought of it as like a, you know, as a great horror movie, you know, because it's right. And apparently when it was first, I think when it was first released, the distributors cut all the gore out of it and they tried to release it as like a comedy movie. And <laughs> clear, it clearly didn't work. And then they went right. and put all the, all the gory scenes back in, you know, so so as a it's, it's sort of like, you know, it flips back and forth between is it a comedy? Is it a horror movie? Right. You know, what is it intended to be? And I also read that Frank Hennenlotter does not consider himself a horror director. He considers himself a maker of exploitation films. Oh, interesting. You know, this was going to be one of my badges, but I decided against it. But apparently a lot of the cast comes from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City. Oh, really? Yeah, and I'm wondering, and so it was sort of going to be like the worst commercial for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. <laughs> um, clearly, these are people who had some training, the yeah. actors. So it had to have been directed in a way to be, you know, we well, just thought this so over yes. the top. Yes, this is one of my badges. Again, not exactly a badge, but it was the Academy Award for Best Acting <laughs> that goes to literally every single person in this there movie. Because yes, they're yeah. they're over the top, and they're all like you know they're all but they're all doing the same thing. They're all at the same level, and it's all at the very top. You get the sense that they are theater actors because it's like big movements mm -hmm. and like yeah very good yeah. screams like a lot of projection and a lot of like <laughs> physical showing of what you're yeah. feeling right. which is a very theater actor vibe right, right. i will right. say that i looked up a lot of the cast members and not many of them did other projects no. <laughs> yeah i looked up the main guy kevin and it's yeah his credits were <laughs> basket case one basket case two basket case three yeah pretty which, much which is funny i because i actually you know when i watched the movie and, and I saw the ending, I said, all right, well, I, I guess they die at the end. I'm not sort of giving away anything. Um, and then I was like, then what's Basket Case 2? So I happened to find yeah. Basket Case 2 on YouTube. So I watched the first like five minutes of it just to see. And it, and it sort of starts out where this ends and they're on their way to the hospital. So I guess they just- Yeah, they live. They live after, you know, so, falling oh, off okay. the side. I really only had one question, honestly. I guess it was two. One, why is your dad here? Two. <laughs> At the end, Which I hope we've answered. <laughs> yes, yes, you absolutely have. And I should find a better way to phrase that because that sounds very, very rude. <laughs> and I'm very sorry. Don't worry. Mr. It's fine. Um, <laughs> um, I'm not like this. Please, please invite me over again. Um, so at the end of the movie, all right, when they're fighting and they sort of fall out of the window and they're hanging from the sign or whatever, is Belial trying to save him or kill him? Because the way that like it's shot, Ooh, Belial is sort of, you know, they're doing a kind of like a classic cliff cliffhanger movie right. scene where Belial is holding on to Dwayne. And his grip is kind of like, you know, loosening a little bit, but you can't tell. Maybe it's supposed to be ambiguous, but I'm curious for you guys, if you guys had thoughts either way. I thought Belial was trying to kill him just by the way I he was grabbing too. onto his throat and like strangling him. Although now that you say that, I was like, well, maybe that was the only way he could hold on 
himself. So I don't know, but I I initially wow. thought I initially thought he was killing him as well, and yeah. I'm actually surprised that there is like a big question at the center of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> because I can also see sort of like in that flash of like maybe he want you know intended to try to kill him at the beginning, but it's like right. but they're also I mean some would say they have a very strong connection. Right. Right. <laughs> Dwayne is also the only person who is going to take care of them. Who is actually right. gonna be there? What is, for well, him. yeah. What would he do you know, without him? Just like around the streets. <laughs> so right. I could see for a split second Bilal being like, you know, choking his brother, but then being like, oh wait, if I let him go, then he'll like really be dead. It's Never like, well, I have to that. now go back and watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> we all should go back and watch it again. Right. Everyone listening should watch this for the first time or again. <laughs> exactly. I was at, at the end of the movie, I was like, I don't know if I need to see that again. But now that I'm talking about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I get it. I should definitely. It's 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 a great I movie. I will say, I think it holds up on multiple watches. <laughs> so base and stupid and funny. <laughs> And yeah, gross. and, and you know, very, and just sort of gross. campy is another word. You Super know, campy, right. yeah, per- absolutely. Perfect for bunk two, three, seven. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, like when when the you know that thing that they create to chop the father in half. You know, this like this saw that rolls down the the yeah. plank, and then just oh, you just see his body just split, <laughs> you know, right in two. That's kind of what the father did to them. You know, so it. it Oh. Maybe I'm getting deeper than the, the directors met, but I don't no, know. No, I think this movie is <laughs> the most artistic, <laughs> deepest movie I've ever seen now. <laughs> I gave this movie the Mary Kate and Ashley, it's a twin thing badge. <laughs> for That's a good their, badge. like crazy weird connection between Dwayne and Belial. So during the the rape scene, right, Belial is out. And Dwayne is kind of like dreaming and right? Dreaming and seeing this happen, kind yeah. of? Or dreaming well, of a, himself. Right, dreaming of himself, I think. With but then, with Sharon, right? When Belial's eyes go red, like what is that? <laughs> is that a is that a twin thing? Is that like because doesn't Dwayne wake up and like understand what's happened and then goes to get Belial? The red eyes thing I, I did I did notice that because it was also just like, oh, here's a other special effect that we figured out we can do, you know? <laughs> like, like yeah. initially right. I was just like, okay, now he's also supernatural. I mean, yes, he was always a little bit supernatural, but right. just it was also right. like, oh, his eyes glow red. It, and I actually had a little side badge. Maybe this is just a little like participation trophy that was <laughs> like, that's the, that's the red eye um, participation trophy because like Belial doesn't blink like that dude right. has got to have dry ass eyes um, not <laughs> maybe one... that's what the red is <laughs> right, not red one eye. blink <laughs> <laughs> my, my first award and using the camp theme is the hide and, the hide and seek award um, goes to Belial for the scene where he all of a sudden you see a hand coming out of the toilet and Belial is hiding <laughs> yes. inside the toilet. Okay, the my would... note about that is that there's no way that he would fit in there and then <laughs> his hand be able to come out that far without seeing the rest of him. I... Like he's not, the, the physics just doesn't work. <laughs> that's about true, things. that's true. <laughs> that is the least believable part of the movie. <laughs> I will say that Dwayne does describe him as a squashed octopus. Yeah. So, like <laughs> octopuses are like much squishier 
and like are really good at like getting in and through like tiny holes because they have no bones. And like that, I mean, does the Bilal have bones? Maybe he can squ- squish. I, like an he octopus. looks like he's only bone and <laughs> right. <laughs> he has like this weird, like he has a spine in the back, I think, that looks like it's coming up the side of his head. And then he has this like crazy muscular arm. <laughs> well, I, I read that um, Hennenlotter, when he came up, first of all, I think apparently he came up with the title first. Like he loved the title, <laughs> Basket Case, and then went backwards and said, all right, I got to write a movie. Oh. Um and one of the things, so his concept initially was, as he put it, a malignant jack-in-the-box. <laughs> and then it just sort of morphed from there into saying, oh, well, maybe he'll be like, the, you know, the brother of, of, the, of the other character or something like that. So, you know, he did have this idea of some kind of a smush <laughs> character. Smush. Yeah. Uh, such really great adjectives that we can use throughout <laughs> this movie. I have a Belial badge. I'm going to call it the New York booty badge. Um, which really shows off sort of the culinary scene and in that part of New York in that era, right in the early scenes of this, when he's just like throwing food into the basket, like gremlin style, and it's like cheap. And the basket is like shaking, and he's like, nom, 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 nom. yeah, and then, again with the foley, with the foley, just like, where does it go? <laughs> I oh no, I thought about that a lot. Just, like, does he poop? Like, what does he do? What happens? Does he have a digestive system? Like, where? I. Yeah, we don't know. You're right, because he does eat, but... (laughs) He's a lot. He's a lot. Yeah. Maybe there are answers to that in uh, Basket Basket Case case 2 and 3, because I believe it's either 2 or 3 where Belial has children with another sort of deformed creature named Eve. And I have a lot of questions, but that's for another another episode. (laughs) We didn't talk about this, but again, from the research, I call it the decades ahead of its time badge. And the distributors, uh, when they first put it out at, in the midnight shows, gave out disposable surgical masks to all the people what? in the theater audience. And it was supposedly to keep the blood from splattering all over your face that you were watching on the screen. But people would sit in the theaters with the surgical masks on back in the 1980s. So, so they were That's clearly amazing. prescient. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. Who knows That's what diseases this stuff the spread of? <laughs> let's talk about Sharon for a yeah, minute. Yeah, let's talk she about Sharon. Quite sure. number one, great wig. Like, yeah, right. great wig that shifted a bunch on its <laughs> yeah. own. <laughs> yeah. In different positions and different scenes. Yeah. It's great. There's a part of me that's like, you're already in this like low budget movie. Just use your real hair. I mean, I like you trying to disguise yourself. Like, what's going on? Uh, it's, a, <laughs> well, it's like a bad wig. That's a bad She was wig. apparently a singer in a punk band and shaved her head. Oh. So that's why she wore a wig. That's. Makes a lot of sense. But you you would think that you could find a better way. <laughs> <laughs> when she shows up as the receptionist, that is the second time I think she's read that script. Um, <laughs> but I also, like, I really liked her. You know, she was, like, nice. And then, like, and she really liked Dwayne. And I like, like, they're sort of, like, weird blossoming like romance weird open mouth kiss was so gross (laughs) yeah it was what they were directed to do on on camera (laughs) and there's one thing i don't know if you guys caught this but when she's yelling at him about like you haven't seen the empire state building you haven't seen the twin towers and then she says 
Grumman's Chinese Theater. Yes. And I'm like, I saw isn't that, that. Isn't that I heard in LA? That too. <laughs> I was like, was there one in New York? Like, I, I actually know. looked it up and I don't think there ever was one. <laughs> so that's really funny. I, mean, I obviously did way too much research <laughs> on this movie, but part of it, part of it was having the DVD. So I was able to watch it with Frank Hennenlotter's commentary. Oh. Robin, I am happy to give you the DVD. So oh my God. So yes, you can do please. that. Um, yeah, that sounds incredible. The the guy John, I think his name is John Caglione Jr., who did the makeup in this movie, ended up creating Heath Ledger's Joker makeup. Oh, he did really well for himself. So good he, for him. So that was my sort he of. He had a career. Start, That's good. Start somewhere badge <laughs> because nice. he actually really you know made something out of himself. I don't know if anybody else in this movie did, but but the makeup artist certainly did. That's awesome. I have the the I Heart New York badge for not only the uh, gross portrait we get of 1980s New York, but also that like square on shot of the Twin Towers. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which happens like multiple times and you're like, oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) And that had to have been like stock footage or something from. I'm sure. Yeah. It's just jarring, <laughs> among the other jarring things in this yeah. movie. I have, um, I, have a, I have a nice badge. It's the uh, Nameless Cool Ant badge to Dwayne and Belial's <laughs> aunt. Oh, who, yeah. Who was not given a name. It just says aunt in the credits. But, like, every family has a cool aunt, and she's the one, <laughs> you know? She like, was the only she... one who knew that he was a person right yeah who cared she, about like, him and, and was yeah. understanding yeah. accepting but i also think it's very funny that they did not give her a name yeah, and and you don't you never know what happens like she sort of right. just disappears from the yeah. script you know she's right. in there yeah. and she's caring and then they got they separated down so they're cool. from, that's yeah. it yeah <laughs> exactly exactly maybe she does she come back i wonder in the sequels i guess maybe we'll she, have to watch to yeah. find out <laughs> figure it out yeah <laughs> i also loved that woman who is, I think her name was Josephine, who was standing on the stairs when Dwayne got to the hotel. Yes. And told him the story about the woman who was in his room before <laughs> and was like all animated and telling him, I don't know, she disappeared or whatever. No one's ever heard from her again. And then just runs down the stairs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, like she I'm said like, her oh. line, I'm done. And yeah. I just yeah. turn around and walk away. <laughs> just like, oh, the crazy lady that lives with the... I've got one more badge, and that's the the true New York badge to to Dwayne in buying the television for Belial, because the, the this was something that the, the well he comes back and he says I got this TV on 14th Street, and it has a guarantee, and then Belial goes to change the channel and the knob comes off, and if you know New York, 14th Street <laughs> is known for having these like second rate like off label stores where you can buy these like these like half name brand electronics that clearly will break the first time you touch them so, so <laughs> they just sort of nailed that scene that all Blyle had to do is got to change the channel and the knob fell off because that's exactly the kind of tv you'd buy on 14th street um before we go i have one final badge that's the father-daughter bonding badge. Because, uh, <laughs> because obviously, this was the movie that. that uh, you guys can't hear this. It's not jump-started our mutual horror love. Really pushed it into the next realm. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, and it hasn't stopped. <laughs> it hasn't 
stopped. We watched some real weird stuff together That's ever true. since. <laughs> That's true. And if we can get through COVID, we can start doing it again where we can actually yeah. watch it in the same room <laughs> once again. Now that you're on the East Coast <laughs> in haunted Connecticut, as I hear. Yes, yes. <laughs> Well, thanks, Dad, for coming. Well, on the it, this was so much fun. You guys have to say are doing just a great job with these podcasts. They're so much fun. Love listening to them. <laughs> Thank so, you, Mister. It's going to be it's going to be weird listening to this one though. <laughs> Before we go, do you have anything that you want to plug? Um, well, I mean, that I really have nothing that I'm doing <laughs> that I need to plug. But keeping with the Zlotnik centric podcast. Um, I am a paid spokesperson for Zlot's Pots, the finest in hand-thrown <laughs> pottery. Um, so I would uh, promote that and say, go on to Zlot's Pots or robinslotnick.com and get yourself some pottery. <laughs> wow, thanks. Real Robin Zlotnick heavy episode. <laughs> Otherwise, I just, sit in, I just sit at home and watch horror movies. So I got nothing else going on. <laughs> That's a life. Can't tell the hell out of horror history Gather round you gutter clowns Take a seat by me Turn the page to blood and rage The chapter will begin Your movie buffs don't know enough That's why we have Andy doing this podcast Hello campers, Counselor Andy here. You may remember me from such activities as conjoined twin separation, bargain television shopping on a budget, and cheeseburger foley. And it's Parents' Day here at camp, and I know we have a lot of famous parents in the horror genre. A lot of folks that get plenty of attention and recognition, you know, the big ones. Obviously, there's Norman Bates's mom, Carrie's mom, Regan's mom, Jason's mom, the three mothers. Wow, that's a lot of moms. Lots of women. Wonder if that means anything. Of course, there's famous dads as well. Frankenstein, for example. In addition to being an allegory for man's meddling in matters he cannot comprehend, the overreach of science and technology, it's a parable about parenthood. Dude literally created life and then said, whoops, whoa, this is too heavy. I'm not ready for this. Deadbeat dad. Additionally, all of the sequels to the original Frankenstein seem to follow this sins of the father vibe where the descendants of our mad doctor start off saying, I'm not like my father. He was mad. And then they end up getting a taste of some mad science power and immediately becoming the proverbial chips off the old block, the apples that do not fall far. And there are also fathers in horror who are famous for their work rather than for being fathers, the monsters that most of us don't often think of as dads. Dracula, after all, had both a son and a daughter, but we don't really talk about that. Also, two of our biggest slashers, Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers, both dads. Hell, depending on which timeline you believe, keep in mind the Hewitt family remake continuity aside, literally every Texas Chainsaw sequel is positioned as a direct sequel to the original film with no connection to any other sequel. But depending on which one of those movies you believe, Leatherface is a father, possibly to multiple children. So that's interesting that we don't think of these guys as dads. You know, we think of the, the work first. I chalk this up to the inherent 
misogyny of our culture in general, looking at them as successful movie murderers instead of, you know, failed fathers, the way we don't talk about how Pamela Voorhees was an accomplished stalker and killer. We just talk about how she's Jason's crazy mom. Nobody ever says Michael Myers is a neglectful absentee father. We only know him as the Halloween slasher. Speaking of Jason, when asked about whether or not he has any kids out there, he replied, not that I know of, and winked with his one eye. Anyway, I'm saying we're a sexist society. Indeed, there are no shortage of big name parents in our genre. But I wanted to take this opportunity today on this special Parents' Day to acknowledge some of the under-recognized, somewhat unsung horror parents. I want to hand out a few badges to say, hey, mom and dad and stepdad and mother-in-law and sister who's like a mom, I see you, I appreciate you. First and foremost, you can't talk about parents without talking about... Parents, Bob Balaban, 1989 horror comedy satire. The titular parents being Nick and Lily Lamley, played by Randy Quaid and Mary Beth Hurt. This is a period piece that's set in the late 1950s suburban America, and the Lamleys represent everything wrong with 1950s suburban America. And also they're cannibals, probably. Parents is a really interesting film. It cost $3 million to make and made less than a million total worldwide, so it was a commercial failure, which is a shame, because I think that has a lot to do with people just not knowing where to put the movie. It's one-third black comedy and one-third earnest coming-of-age story and one-third nightmare logic psychological thriller, and the lines between the three are, like, always blurred. Part of what makes it so successful dramatically is that the waking world of the film is so surreal and sometimes absurd that the hallucinations and dream sequences are hard to pin down as such, and they tend to just blend in with the diegetic reality, so you're never quite sure as a viewer what is actually happening and what is just imagined. It has a lot to say about war and advertising and voyeurism and surveillance and conformity and I mean just about everything that satires about that era tend to comment on but ultimately the horror stuff here comes down to this idea of taking the mythical outsider cannibals be they backwoods hillbillies or indigenous people of the south pacific or the amazon river long othered by the genre it takes those and it brings them home it asks the question what if these cannibals these outsiders quote unquote what if they were insiders what if they were your neighbors? What if they were your gasp parents? The film is pretty expertly directed by Bob Balaban, who is unsurprisingly, if you know his pedigree, an actor's director, but also he has a hell of a visual style here. But Randy Quaid and Mary Beth Hurt are absolutely mesmerizing as these stuffy but horny no elbows on the table while we cook and eat a social worker mom and dad. And I wanted to give Nick and Lily Lamley the mystery meat backyard barbecue badge, the grill master badge, and the mom and dad please get a room we don't need to see that badge. It's worth watching. It's currently streaming on the Movie Sphere free app. That's 1989. Two years later, in 1991, Wes Craven released his horror folktale take on gentrification, race relations, and incest, I guess. The people under the stairs. The mother and father in this film, also their brother and sister in a dynastic lineage of like mortician landlords. It's just a long line of greedy creeps and inbreeding, cranked up and kinked out. They're like the 1950s anti-commie pro-war American imperialist values of parents exploded into 
full-on racism and white nationalism. And here they are cannibals, but their cannibalism takes a backseat to the fact that they are abductors and abusers with economic and cultural power over an entire neighborhood, and they are also, guess what, forcing other people to be cannibals. Taken with everything else about them, the cannibalism is the least of their offenses, is the point here. And they truly are just foster parents from hell. And they're played by Everett McGill and Wendy Roby, who were actually cast in the role because Wes Craven liked them so much as a married couple in Twin Peaks. But they aren't who I want to talk about, actually. <laughs> That's not who I want to talk about. I want to talk about Ruby Williams, played by Kelly Jo Minter, who, between this, Popcorn, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, Summer School, Lost Boys, it's hard to think of an actress who was doing more high-profile, consistently good genre work in the 80s and 90s than her, excepting maybe her Popcorn co-star, Jill Sholin, but we'll talk about her later. In People Under the Stairs, Kelly Jo Minter plays Ruby the way she plays every character, with endless charisma, earnestness, and confidence. She is the first voice we hear in the film, reading and explaining tarot cards to our protagonist, Fool. Now, Fool, aka Poindexter, played wonderfully by Brandon Adams, is her brother in the film, but she acts as his mother, raising him along with her own children because their mother is sick with cancer and bedridden, and Ruby is also taking care of her. She's running the whole household. She's protective of Fool. She wants Fool to follow his dreams and be a doctor. She doesn't want him to know too much about his mother's cancer. She doesn't want him to get involved with Leroy's plans, even if they are honestly justified and kind of right. It's worth noting that, but it's also worth noting that the entire narrative thrust is kicked off by Leroy appealing to Fool's sense of, of patriarchal duty. That whole man of the house fatherhood trope, like you have to run things now, which considering the fact that Fool is only 13, it's kind of an affront to Ruby's abilities as a matriarch here, but that's not what Ruby's concern is. She wants Fool to be okay. I could go on and on about People Under the Stairs and its merits and what it says about our nation's failures on so many fronts, specifically about the theme of parenthood in it. How Craven juxtaposes the corrupt and awful American family ideal with the actual moral correctness and loving connections of people in what, you know, politicians and news anchors of the time would call a quote-unquote broken home. I could spend some more time on just the character of Ruby, who I feel is often unfairly overlooked in conversations about this movie. Because she even has her own arc where she comes around and gets the whole neighborhood to back her up in confronting monsters. These people who have assumed and perverted the mantle of parents. It gives me great pleasure to present Ruby Williams with the spiritual advisor and community organizing badges. Unfortunately, I don't think People Under the Stairs is currently streaming anywhere for free, but if you haven't seen it, it's well worth the price of rental. It's one of those films that was super relevant in its time, but now feels ahead of its time. Wendy Torrance messed up when she stuck with Jack in The Shining. But imagine doing that twice. That's exactly what Dora Baldini does in Mario Bava's Shock. Filmed and released in the summer of 1977, Shock was Bava's final produced and completed film. And this one has an added layer of the parental theme behind the scenes because Mario Bava's son, Lamberto, was heavily involved in the development and production. Lamberto developed the story and worked on the script and even directed a few scenes at his father's request. In the film, Dora Baldini is convinced by her new husband, Bruno, to return to her old house with her child from a previous marriage and live there as a family because Bruno is a pilot and the house is 
houses close to the airport. One small thing, this is the same house where Dora's previous husband, Carlo, injected her with heroin and then apparently killed himself violently with a box cutter. So I feel like that should be a harder sell for Bruno, but maybe that's just me because Dora seems totally unfazed by it and just goes right along with it. And that's why Dora is getting the happy homemaker badge for her constant ability to look at the nightmare going on around her and go, everything's fine. Everything's okay. I have this under control until of course it becomes clear that everything is not fine. And then as she kind of slowly loses it, she decides to deal with the situation in the most conclusive and spectacular fashion imaginable at the time with a pickaxe, mind you. And then chaos ensues. And that is why I am awarding her as well with what I call the Home Reconomics Badge. I'm also going to give her a Marco Polo Champion Badge because her son's name is Marco and she's always calling out for him and I promise you cannot watch this movie without yelling back Polo at least twice. Ultimately, it doesn't end well for Dora and it's a truly haunting scene when she meets her fate and it nearly immediately follows one of the absolute best jump scares in horror film history. Daria Nicolodi does a remarkable job in portraying Dora. And that's not an exceptional thing for her. She was excellent in everything she was in, and it's a real shame that she passed away last year. Because in addition to being a gifted and fearless actor, Daria Nicolodi was also a writer, and I feel she is often very criminally overlooked in conversations about film. Like Deborah Hill, her earlier contributions to the genre were overshadowed by the profile and success of a former partner, who arguably would not have the same space in history without her. We would not have Suspiria without Daria Nicolodi. Shock is streaming on Shudder and Amazon Prime. Anyway, stepdads, am I right? It's possible that 1987's The Stepfather is better known and more widely celebrated than I think it is. It did, after all, get a remake in that age of remakes in the early to mid-aughts. But I also feel that when it is given credit, most of the discussion centers around Terry O'Quinn's performance, and that's fair because he's excellent. But the movie is also just legit great. And the character of Jerry Blake, a.k.a. Henry Morrison, a.k.a. Bill Krieger, a.k.a. Gene Clifford, a.k.a. Keith Grant, Jerry Henry Bill Gene Keith isn't a slasher in the traditional sense. He doesn't want to kill anyone, not at first. His murders are all consequential, a byproduct of his deceptions failing. That isn't to say, you know, I'm defending the guy or anything. He's a fictional murderer. But Jerry is not just going around killing people. He's got one goal in mind, one purpose. He wants to be the perfect father in a perfect family. He is a family man machine. And when a family turns out to not be perfect or someone threatens the uncomfortable piece of his domestic bliss, it's like a programming error and the machine goes haywire and his answer is to eliminate the problem. But the real problem is, of course, there is no perfect family. It doesn't exist. There's a reason that there's so much to talk about in horror regarding the themes of parenthood and family. That stuff has real stakes and real consequences, and it can be scary. We don't need horror movies to tell us that your parents can mess you up. And even the most seemingly ideal families have problems. What's interesting in The Stepfather is that the threat is an outsider who brings his twisted Boy Scout ideals and absolutes into homes that would, like the Williams family and people under the stairs, probably be laid labeled as dysfunctional or lacking by the fundamentalists of the day. Jerry is representative of the inevitable conclusion of that fundamentalism. And as scary as the idea is, O'Quinn's performance is even scarier because he gives it moments where you can see the why in it. 
especially in that second film, which is directed by Jeff Burr, who coincidentally is the filmmaker responsible for Leatherface, the Texas Chainsaw sequel that tells us Leatherface is a father. But in that film, we get some real sweet, tender beats with Jerry, where he's watching the ad for the Palmetto Estates or listening to his Rice Krispies after he pours milk in. And it really hammers home how invested and therefore how dangerous this man is. Even when he snaps at the end of Stepfather 2, he voices this sense of frustrated entitlement, seemingly at the God he believes in. He just yells out, why is this so hard? And that's a thing that most of us think about a lot of things in our lives. Relationships, work, creative pursuits, even just day-to-day grown-up banality. We relate to Jerry in that moment, and that's, well, that's why he's the focal character, because it's scary. Anyway, Jerry gets the probably has the most badges badge because seriously, dude has tons of talents and skills. Forgery, woodworking, crafts, disguises, crime scene cleanup, real prototypical dad, dad, daddy, dad with a capital D. And the supporting cast in both films, great. The first movie I want to highlight a little bit because Jill Sholin, Kelly Jo Minter's popcorn co-star and another contender for the 80s, 90s mainstream Scream Queen title plays the skeptical daughter. The sequel from 1989 has Caroline Williams and Jonathan Brandis and Meg Foster. The first movie is, as far as I know, not streaming anywhere for free right now. The sequels are both on Prime. In 2019, Lars Klefberg, off the reception of two short films and one at the time shelved by the studio feature, directed a remake of Tom Holland and Don Mancini's 1988 killer doll classic, Child's Play. It went a different route than the original and definitely made the material its own, much to the disdain of a lot of fanboys out there. I'm here to tell you that they're wrong, and this movie is great. And like most of the things I've discussed so far, I could go on all day about it, but we'll skip to the part where I give a badge to Aubrey Plaza's unfortunately named mother of the protagonist, Karen. She's got bad taste in men like Dora. Maybe she's a little detached and overwhelmed and going through her own stuff, but she's trying her best. And I think that's why the horror element here is so compelling because she can't help but mess up her son Andy a little bit. Intentionally or not, the world is a pitcher's park. There's no way to hit a home run. Things are going to go wrong. You just have to hope that your shortcomings don't somehow trickle down through your child into a highly sophisticated sentient killing machine. Unfortunately for Karen in this story, that's exactly what happens. Because the idea here isn't a Vodun ritual transferring a serial killer's soul into the body of a wise cracking doll. It is instead a Frankenstein scenario where a learning thing is observing the behavior of an unhappy, potentially traumatized teenage boy free of important context. The whole thing is basically another parable about the nature of parenthood. Because what is parenthood, after all, if not an attempt to shape, guide, and protect the experiences of an intelligent being with the safety protocols removed. Andy himself is something of a father to the Mark Hamill-voiced Chucky. Babies having babies having babies, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, of course, the consequences are dire and scary and sometimes a little darkly comic, and the point is, Karen was trying. And that's all a parent can do sometimes. So Karen, you get the you did your best badge with a side of the at least you're not Carrie's mom badge. 
And I had a bunch more I wanted to talk about. There's Frank Davies and the complex arc he goes through in Larry Cohen's It's Alive and It Lives Again. There's Yone, the cat ghost mother-in-law of the millennium in 1968's Kuroneko. There's Louis Batista, played by Samuel L. Jackson in 1997's Eve's Bayou. There's Kevin Conway in The Fun House. There's so much. There's so many parents in horror, and we don't have time to acknowledge all of them today. But I do very much want to acknowledge my mom, Suzanne, for getting me into horror movies in the first place. And to my dad, Wayne, for being chill about it when I wanted to stay in and watch Friday the 13th movies all day instead of playing Little League. You two get the Andy's Best Parents Ever badge. Specifically, you're my best parents ever. Happy Parents Day. Hope you enjoyed Basket Case. Hope you've sought out Hennenlotter's other movies as well. Brain Damage, Frankenhooker, both terrific. And I hope you remember to keep a little love in your heart for the parents out there in our horror genre. From Rosemary to Kayako to Xenomorph Queen, Dracula to Laurie Strode, Be Ya Vampire Count or Final Girl, Happy Parents Day. Thanks again, Mr. Zlotnick, for being a good monster kid dad. Thanks to all of you for listening, and I'll see you real soon. Bunk 237, a horror movie podcast, stars Jet Wen and Robin Zlotnick as the final girls of Bunk 237. Andy Sell as Counselor Andy. And introducing Alex Skoke as Camp Director Susan Check. The show is produced by me, Shane Segretti. Our theme song is written and performed by Dan Zlotnick. And our outro music is written and performed by Axe Slasher. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and it may be featured on an upcoming episode. Have a badge of your own for this movie? Follow us on Instagram at Bunk237Pod and Twitter at Bunk237 and let us know. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are downloaded.